Welcome to the AACPP podcast, the weekly podcast brought to you by the Association of Child Protection Professionals, where we, alongside guest hosts, share with you the latest in child protection news. Today we have a special episode for you. In these special episodes, we take a more focused look at singular issues that child protection professionals need to know about. These are often specific and urgent, so we'll be talking with a professional at the forefront of the issue. But first, let's hear a few words from the AOCPP team. Hello, I'm Vicky Hill from the AOCPP team, and I'm here to tell you about our current free membership trial. We're offering a free membership trial until the 31st of August this year. We realise that the next few months will continue to put pressure on child protection professionals, particularly those working on the front line. And that's why we're opening our resources to as many of you as possible. Those who sign up for membership will receive online access to our highly respected journal, Child Abuse Review. You get discounted entry to our future events, workshops and conferences and access to our special virtual webinar this August on abusive head trauma. So much more on offer as well. So sign up for your free membership now and go to childprotectionprofessionals.org.uk to join. Thanks very much. Hi, I'm Tammy Banks, the Interim Consultant Director of the Association of Child Protection Professionals and your host for today. In today's episode, I'll be talking with Dr. Karen Treisman about the stress, trauma and survival responses practitioners are experiencing during COVID-19. Karen is a specialist clinical psychologist who has worked in the NHS and children's services for many years. She has extensive experience in the areas of trauma, parenting, childhood adversity and attachment and works clinically using a range of therapeutic approaches with families, systems and children in or on the edge of care, including unaccompanied asylum seeking young people and adopted children. Karen also supports organisations in developing trauma-informed, infused and responsive practice. She is an external consultant, trainer, speaker and assessor to a variety of local authorities and organisations. She's the author of eight books, including the best-selling book, The Therapeutic Treasure Box. And this year, Karen has been awarded the Youth Psychology Professional of the Year. Thank you so much for speaking with us today, Karen. Pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Tammy. Wow, what an impressive bio. Goodness, it's... thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So... Based on your bio, we could talk for hours today, but we're going to try and focus specifically with response to trauma and COVID-19. Does that sound okay to you? Sounds good to me. Fantastic. So could you tell us just a little bit about your life at the moment with regards to how you're supporting people and how you've needed to adapt to that support? Yeah, it's been a huge shift personally and professionally. So I was put on the government extremely vulnerable list due to pre-existing health conditions. So I was in lockdown and still am shielding in lockdown, I suppose, way before it was official. So that's been interesting being in a gardenless flat. Since the pandemic, things have hugely shifted. I've had to move to working virtually. I've had to create videos and online modules and offer sort of therapy in a much more adaptive way and training. So that's been a huge shift. 
And I suppose I've also been doing some quite unusual things that I wasn't doing before. So for example, I've been running some therapeutic groups for the children of key workers around feelings of anxiety. I've been running therapeutic groups in prisons with people using iPads from their cells and yeah, supporting lots of organisations around their response to COVID and post-lockdown from schools to NHS services to social services to prisons and all sorts. So yeah, it's been a real sort of changing and still is a changing landscape. Wow, so fair to say that you've been just as busy before as you are during, but adapting quite fast to be able to still deliver your services. Yes, trying to. <laughs> Yeah, trying to. I think we've all done so much learning in the last three months from a technological perspective. It would have probably taken us 10 years previously. I am old school when it comes to technology. I was saying before, I still have a paper diary. I still like my photos to get developed. I'm not the most techie of person. I'm very relational. I'm a hugger. I'm a face-to-face -face person. So yeah, definitely learn a huge amount about Zoom and Microsoft Teams and online modules and all sorts. So um, definitely. Brilliant. Could you um, tell us a little bit about what you're seeing from a practitioner's perspective? Because you've talked to a few different customer groups, client groups there with regards to key workers, children that you're running therapeutic groups with people in prison who you're running groups with and then also the support that you're offering to organizations I'd be really interested to know a little bit about actually what you're offering those three different groups and what you've found over this time yeah no there's huge amounts of and I think I'm really lucky in the variety you know I support so many different organizations from domestic violence asylum seeking refugee local authority child protection I'm still doing court reports and being expert witness so lots and lots of those stuff I think the first thing is just to really acknowledge and I know this has been said but I think it's lost quite a lot is that whole same storm different boat and not just same storm, different boat, but different amount of time at sea, different access to a life jacket, different experience of whether you can swim, <laughs> different person riding the boat. So I think with this pandemic, there's been so many waves of emotion, but also there's such difference. And I think it's brought those differences to the surface, like oil to water. Whether that is social injustice, whether that is people who live in overcrowding, people who have gardens, people who don't. And we know that some people in the context of the pandemic are having a great time, are feeling more connected and loved than ever before. You know, feel like it's a holiday, feel reconnected, feel all of those things. And there's other people that this has been one of the most distressing, dysregulating, horrible and stressful times. So just to really appreciate that difference. But I think what has been quite different in the midst of the pandemic is people have been in this almost traumatic, stressful fog. And by a fog, I mean the air that we're breathing has been, there's been such emotional contagion. There's been such an air of fear and uncertainty and collective loss that I think that people are not only holding their own stuff, but holding stuff from social media, from the work that they do. So there's been lots and lots of things, I suppose, just to touch upon a few of them. I think particularly in a child protection arena, given that you are talking in that arena, I think there's been a lot of things. I think there's been a lot of people's trauma 
has been triggered. And if you think about, for example, the trauma in domestic violence or sexual abuse or physical abuse, there is so much around safety, mistrust, feeling trapped, feeling powerless, feeling helpless, not being able to trust, not feeling anchored or regulated, having to be hypervigilant. I think that for many people has been resurfaced and re-triggered amidst the pandemic and people have fallen down a memory time hole, feeling alone, feeling mm -hmm. out of control. So I think that's been something that we've seen a lot of people's past experiences resurface and be re-triggered. So that's one big area. So it's interesting because from a domestic abuse perspective, we've been seeing a, a sharp increase in domestic abuse over the lockdown period and not just the coercive and controlling behaviour, but also an increase in specific situational domestic abuse as well. As part of the training company that I'm director of, Tay Training, we were commissioned to develop a course that was specifically for frontline professionals with regards to responding to domestic abuse in lockdown. Yeah. And I was really interested by the fact that the organisation that asked us to develop this course initially were talking very much to the sharp increase in domestic abuse from teenagers on parents yes. and then also on people who had a history of domestic violence and actually they hadn't been abusive so we're talking about perpetrators here they hadn't been abusive for many many years and actually they were finding themselves really struggling mm -hmm. to control their behavior within the pandemic situation yeah, I think there's been a lot more awareness and thought. I think people's window of tolerance has been much, much more narrow. I think people's protective factors have often not been able to access, whether that's someone going to their therapist or a service they seek, or if someone goes into flight mode, I need to get out of here, not being able to. I think we've certainly seen increase in some family dynamics and relationals in, as you say, child-to-parent violence. And lots of those resurface feelings of people feeling powerless, out of control, trapped, people feeling invisible and silenced. And I think it's really brought some of that to the surface and the forefront. We look at our children in care and our care leavers, you know, lots of people talking about that sense of loneliness and disconnection and feeling invisible or silenced. So I think lots and lots of those different aspects about, and for many people, I think the pandemic has created increased sense of despair and confusion and uncertainty and unpredictability. And with that, we have seen some people respond and go to their survival modes. And I think we've seen that on social media. There's a lot more attacks. We've seen that in the practitioner work. I think it's really important to always remember that anger is a bodyguard emotion. Anger is a mask emotion. It's a camouflage emotion. And generally, anger is married to pain or fear or sadness. So I think we're seeing a lot of response to fear. I think some people are feeling quite vulnerable. And we're all going through this really unfamiliar time you know none of us have lived through a pandemic before and so it's brought a lot of things to the surface that people are having to make sense of and grapple with in the midst of also a lot of pressure you know there's there feels like there's a lot of pressure of how people should be coping or what people should be doing yeah no I can really resonate with that from the kind of external pressure because I know that people that I've spoken to 
they all feel like comparatively they're either doing better or worse than somebody else and it is from a very comparative perspective one of the things that I talk about regularly is the fact that actually we're, we're each on our own individual and also collective journey through this pandemic mm. and that comparison isn't helpful for any of us when you're talking specifically there about people who are experiencing trauma, particularly brought on and possibly triggers from the lack of power and control and the isolation that the pandemic's causing, could you talk us through some of the ways that people may be responding at the moment? Yeah, so it's been really, really interesting. I think from a trauma perspective, what I've been really struck by is for example, many of the young people who I work with, so sort of teenagers particularly, have really gone very different ways. And again, that's that uniqueness. So for example, some young people who I've been working with, such as those who have been trafficked, who have experienced sexual abuse, have been incredibly re-triggered and they've been having nightmares, they've been having flashbacks, they've been feeling very unsafe in their own bodies, they've been feeling very snappy on edge, their relationships with people around them has become more fractured, they've been having much more anxiety or worries about various things. I've seen other young people who have really gone into sort of block avoidance dissociation other people who have been self-harming more or increasing their drugs or alcohol but it's also been interesting because a lot of my young people have been thriving in the pandemic and that's been an interesting thing to look at so some young people who have been this is nothing in the context of the abuse that I experienced and looking at it in sort of the perspective way other young people who have been this has given me a real wake-up call and time to think about what's precious I think amongst social workers particularly, that's been that even more compounded because people are processing and living through it at the same time as trying to support other people and often feeling not acknowledged, not valued by the clap, by society, by managers or leaders who are not acknowledging the work that they're doing, but also you know, having to contend with for example, their own children or their own families, and so having all of those difficulties on their own well-being as well. Yeah, it's interesting, though, that you say about kind of a bit of a tale of two cities, because some people, as you're saying, really are struggling, and some weren't expecting to either, and other people are really thriving and refocusing, and are in very much different situations as well, aren't they? Yeah, I think that's huge. And it's been really interesting. I've had some people say to me, I just never knew I had this part or I've been really shocked and surprised at how I've been feeling. Lots of people have been feeling absolutely exhausted, quite hopeless, having lots of scary thoughts, waking up at night feeling really unsure, struggling to think. So having that sort of brain fog. And other people have said, wow, goodness, like I actually feel way more positive and hopeful than I was. It's given me sort of a way to really think about what I hold precious, what's important, who I am as a person. So I think that's been really interesting to think about people, as you say, people's individual journey and to see how it's been impacting different people's relationship to food and how that's changed. And also thinking about the combination of how other people around you are experiencing and that's come out in lots of my work with social workers around 
you know, if you've got a family member who is experiencing lots of feelings of anxiety and another family member who's feeling that they're over-exaggerating, or if you've got one family member who suddenly is exhausted and needing to sleep all the hours, and you've got another one who's wanting to learn Japanese and gardening and being proactive. So yeah, I think there's been a lot of interesting sort of comparisons and differences between people's response. And that really plays into what we were saying earlier about how it's not helpful to compare where you are in your journey to where somebody else is within their journey. Yeah, absolutely. And just being kind to yourself that you can feel however you feel and that that's okay and that there's not a right or a wrong and that we're all human and that it's completely understandable to go through waves and to oscillate from one place to another and a lot of social workers have been talking about having huge feelings of guilt, guilt about should they take time off or annual leave or guilt around that they're doing a virtual session and their child is crying downstairs. You know, lots of things that people are holding and the goalpost keeps changing. I think that's another massive thing is that usually the way that people cope is that they've got rituals, they've got routines, they've got some sense of predictability, certainty, things to anchor onto. And for many people, there's been a huge wave of change and transitions. There's been conflicting and mixed messages from the government, from social media, from people around you. And so that's a really hard thing to sit with that uncertainty when you feel like there's quite fragile ground or that the goalpost keeps changing. Yeah, and you don't necessarily control where those goalposts are going to land next. Because I think for all of us, that's been quite difficult. Yeah, really, really hard. And not knowing what's going to happen. And I think linking to the trauma that's a huge thing within trauma of apprehensions, not knowing what's around the corner, feeling like you're having to live on the edge, you know, the calm before the storm, feeling very hyper aroused, not knowing who to trust or what to do, and feeling quite fractured in, in many ways. And I think some of that for some people has been mirrored in this pandemic. Do you have any, I guess, thoughts or predictions, I guess, with regards to the longer term impact of the pandemic? Because we've been reflecting a lot with regards to the increase in safeguarding concerns. We've done different podcasts and we've gone to the themes that our members have asked. We've talked to things specifically like the increase in online abuse, teenage and younger children, right to the age of five, being expected to engage online with their schools and their teachers, but also different things like we just mentioned a moment ago about the rise in domestic abuse and the different types of domestic abuse we're seeing. There's been an unfortunate rise in shaken babies and we're seeing an increase in postnatal depression. And obviously, you mentioned at the beginning of this podcast about how people's usual safety networks may have been removed during the pandemic. Yeah. So we have we have a real concern, and that's one of the reasons why we think these podcasts are so important for our members at the moment, is so that we can really reflect and move. The times are moving so fast, faster than I've ever known them to. Yeah. And we're trying to keep up with that and really share that information that people need right now but also we need to try and be forward thinking and we are trying to um, second guess a little bit the impact of this pandemic moving forward and I wonder whether your work with 
individuals and organisations has kind of led you to have a bit of an opinion on how this is going to have a longer term impact? Yeah, huge. And I've been having lots of conversations with different organisations around some of that impact. And yeah, I can share with you some of the areas that we've been talking about. I suppose just before that, just to say, I think for anyone listening now and in this place now, what I keep on saying is, it's that Maya Angelou quote, people will forget what you do and they will forget what you say, but they remember how you make them feel. I think for the children, families that we work with, that we support, and for organisations, how, for example, they treat their social workers or their staff, it's that sense of people will really remember how people were made to feel during this pandemic. How were they valued, acknowledged? How were people empathised with, noticed, felt visible, felt that they were held in mind, felt that they were connected? So I just think there's a really huge thing for individuals and organisations to be thinking about what are our values and how are we actually not just talking the talk but walking the walk? How are we embodying them? How are we infusing them? How are we really practising what we preach? The more that we put in now during this pandemic, for example, social workers feel valued, acknowledged, cared for, their own well-being, supervision, regulation, reflective space, they're going to come back to that organisation with that feeling, with that legacy. The same as if they feel invisible, devalued, minimised, underappreciated, not acknowledged, not had space to reflect, they're coming back with that. And I think that's the same with the families that we're working with. They're going to remember who cared, who looked out for me, who tried to make a difference, you know, that every interaction is an intervention. So I think there's a huge thing about really thinking about how we're using this, about how to make people feel, but how to make who we are and what we stand for and that relationship really forefronted. Karen, that's so far been my favourite part of this podcast because that is so, so important. And if that's all anybody takes away, that's really going to be enough because it, it really is about how we feel and how we make other people feel. And if we can keep reminding ourselves of that, particularly when we're having, we're being overstimulated in every single direction at the moment from an online perspective and then from an information overload. Yeah. If we can keep grounding ourselves with that, I think it's fantastic. So thank you for bringing that up and really making that clear today that it is about looking after ourselves and connecting with ourselves emotionally but then really taking the time to reflect on how our behavior is uh, making other people feel as well yeah it's that being curious instead of furious isn't it and uh, <laughs> yeah. really really trying to reflect and I think at the moment, because people are so full up and their brains have so many tabs open and a lot of people are in brain fog, there's not been a lot of time. And the more that I've been supporting, particularly social workers, to have supervision, reflective practice, to have those collaborative spaces to just name and acknowledge and put words to what they're feeling, it's how do you care for the carer? How do you contain the container? And there's a project I support in Kenya. We were talking about Kenya before we started recording called the Wellness Project. And they say well-being leads to well-doing. Well-being leads to well-doing. And I think that's a huge thing about we cannot regulate other people if we are dysregulated. 
Yeah, I think that's really, really key and really important that at this point we really try and remember that because the pressure's on and caseloads are increasing, expectations are increasing. And you gave a brief example of the fact that a professional might be running a workshop or delivering a session in one room of the house, mm. knowing that their child is crying in another room of the house. Yeah. And so it brings that collision, doesn't it, of home and work life. Whereas previously, part of our way of being able to manage the different priorities in our lives have been to separate them. And actually, we haven't got that power at the moment. That's quite difficult. So if we can revert back to those feelings, that's really, really key. I think that's huge in terms of and a lot of the work I've been doing with social workers has been around processing that work-life boundaries and colliding in terms of the issues that you're experiencing, the feelings that you're experiencing, but also, you know, you're doing, for example, a court assessment from your space in your living room you're inviting that or you're talking about someone's trauma or having a disclosure of sexual abuse and then you put it down and you're turning onto your Netflix or you've got your own child running in or the doorbell goes with your Amazon parcel but also if you think about in a child protection context normally you've got your journey to sort of separate unwind de-stress have a little bit of thinking or you turn around to your colleagues and have a vent or have a hug or go and make a cup of tea. And at the moment, people are contending with all of that stuff whilst potentially also having loss, experiencing grief, having bereavement, loss of identity, whilst continuing to do the work, often in a context of not feeling supported or valued. So that's a lot to hold and to make sense of, really. Yeah, and so much that is colliding. Yeah. I think it always reminds me back to that recognition that if we're expecting our frontline workers, our professionals, to do the hardest jobs that there are, work with people who have really complex needs and vulnerabilities, maybe marginalised, and actually to do that effectively, we really need to ensure that we look after our frontline professionals. Absolutely. And let alone that social services in itself and this is a whole other conversation can be a traumatized organization a trauma soaked organization it can be an organization that can be trauma inducing so we often talk about adverse childhood experiences but there's also adverse organizational experiences and adverse community and cultural experiences so yeah i think well-being is often seen as candy floss and fluffy and secondary and the thing that goes, but actually it should be like brushing your teeth. It's an absolute essential, really. And how can we tell young people and families to value themselves, to look after themselves, if we're not able to model the model and do that ourselves? And how can we deliver the services that they deserve if we're not our best selves, if we're not feeling really, truly, strongly able to? Completely. There's a quote that says that, how do you give people the best of you, not what's left of you? And, and how can you be there for others without leaving yourself behind? So, yeah, I think there's a huge thing in that. And holding in mind that the majority of social workers have also experienced their own childhood experiences, as, as many of us come to this work with our own ghosts of the past and angels of the past and relationship and life experiences. So, yeah, absolutely. I think we've got a real duty of care there. Just to go back to your question before about preempting some of the stuff that we might be seeing, and 
I mean, we could literally be here for hours. I had a five hour meeting a couple of weeks ago where we went through preempting stuff that might happen. And after five hours, we were still going. But just to share some of them, I think certainly the impact that there has been on, as you say, around domestic violence is going to be a huge one around people's loneliness and disconnection around people with disabilities who have had huge changes in their health or who have felt quite silenced or marginalized or invisible. I think we've seen obviously a, a huge alongside with Black Lives Matter around racism, splitting, stigma. A lot of the stuff we've seen around people who've been exposed to grief and loss and also the news and traumatic material. So we're going to have a lot of people who are experiencing grief and loss and bereavement. People are going to be feeling quite de-skilled, increase in anxiety. As you said, online grooming. Think about those who don't have access to technology either, how difficult this experience would be. And then there's lots of areas such as our homeless population who have been able to be housed and homed very, very quickly and how that might feel afterwards if that is not upheld. Children who have been experiencing online bullying, for example, and those children who might have flourished at home and then feeling that they have to go back, but also those children who obviously have missed out huge chunks, those who now have additional physical health conditions, the impact that there's been around families being able to see each other for our adopted and special guardian, kinship, foster care children. How we're going to explain the narratives of the pandemic and what that might happen should there be another lockdown in a few months' time. Huge, huge amounts. Those in our residential homes who have been separated, isolated, disconnected. So, yeah, lots and lots of those different issues that people might be grappling with. It's fair to say that there's there's a lot to come, that as we're moving forward in this time, we need to keep adapting, keep listening, keep supporting each other, keep looking out for that best practice and keep going to, I guess, our operational experts and our real evidence-informed practice to ensure that we're delivering the best services possible to the people that need them, but also looking after ourselves as child protection professionals whilst we're on this journey. Absolutely. And, and holding in mind, you know, I think a lot of people have had huge financial changes. A lot of people who are living in poverty, that has been crystallised. So I think really going back to those human rights perspectives, but as you say, really anchoring onto what can we do? What can we do? And also what has been some of the beautiful things that we've learnt and taken from this experience and, and how can we take that forward? So I think it would be so sad to come out of the pandemic and to not really reflect on what do we want to stick? What have we had? What do we need to reset? What have been the key lessons learned? Our sparkle moments, what are we proud of? How can we really try and feed into that? But also thinking about how can we be proactive? Because it's far easier to prevent fires than to put them out. So I think the more we think about these things now and be creative and innovative, the more we'll be able to create high quality, meaningful services. Brilliant. That's great. Well, on that positive note, Karen, we'll stop there. And I really appreciate your time today. 
I think um, you've given our listeners a lot to think about and really help them, I guess, recognise that lots of people are at different places within this pandemic. And that's from a professional perspective, but also the individuals that we're supporting each day. And actually, we need to be kind to ourselves and kind to each other as well. Yeah, I think that's a huge, really, really important note. Thank you. Is there anything you'd like to say before we say goodbye? No, I think it's been really lovely talking to you. I really hope that the listeners have had some sparkle moments or some seeds planted. And yeah, it's, it's nice to spend the time talking about this. So thank you. Fantastic. Well, I hope that you'll come back on and be our guest in the future. I think we've got a fair few topics it would be really useful to talk to you about. Yeah, absolutely. Sounds good. And if you're interested in finding out more about Karen, there'll be links to her website in our show notes. Yeah, absolutely. I've got endless information on my website, um, including a COVID-specific page, loads of free videos, worksheets and all sorts of things. So there's lots of goodies on there and they're all free. Brilliant. Thank you, Karen. Much appreciated. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Association of Child Protection Professionals podcast today. If there are any specific topics you'd like discussed in future episodes, please email us at hello at aocpp.org.uk. And if you'd like more information about becoming a member, visit our website, childprotectionprofessionals.org.uk. Thanks.